Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning to read at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And... Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, Hear with their ears, Understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we've been singing, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us as we look at the Bible together. Uh, Speak to us of your great holiness, of your majesty and glory. Help us to see how we don't deserve anything that you give us. And help us to see yet your grace and wonder that we may be those who want to proclaim the wonderful good news of the Lord Jesus to others. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, please do sit down. Again, uh, welcome. Uh, We've had a welcome from Tim. Thank you, Tim. Uh, I add my welcome to you, especially if you're here for the first time. If you are here for the first time, you've uh, joined us as we're in week three looking through the book of Isaiah. And uh, two things you might like to do as we uh, uh, come to this point in the service. One would be to turn back uh, in the Bible uh, to the passage that Heather read for us just a little while ago. Page 690 is the page number. Um, The other thing that you might like to do in your uh, many pieces of paper is to dig out um, this one. Uh, On one side it says song during communion. And on the other side there's a a little outline of, um, of the sermon which you might find useful as we go through. Uh, Speaking on Isaiah chapter 5, the American preacher John MacArthur draws a parallel between 
the sinful nation of Judah and his own nation, America, he said this, materialism, drunkard, pleasure-seeking, arrogant conceit, defiant sinfulness, moral perversion, and corrupt leadership. Do you not see them in America? He went on to describe America as a nation under judgment because uh, Judah was like this, and chapter 5 said Judah was under judgment, and so he draws that parallel. Now, it was exactly the same conclusion we came to about two about our own nation as we studied Isaiah chapter 5 two weeks ago. Britain is a nation under the judgment of God. But judgment is not the final message of Isaiah. The book doesn't end at chapter 5. It ends in chapters 65 and 66 with God having gathered together a people for himself from every nation of the world, including sinful Judah, and placing them in his presence in his glorious new heavenly Jerusalem. So here's a question. What can bring about such a transformation? How is it that sinful people will be gloriously transformed to be God's people, cleansed and holy and wanting to serve their Lord? And what will motivate us to tell a sinful nation about the living God? Well, that, I think, is what Isaiah chapter 6 is about and why it's placed right here. The chapter starts with the first point on the handout, if you're following through, the death of Isaiah, a nation in turmoil, verse 1. See, Isaiah tells us in verse 1 that it was the year that King Uzziah died. It is an historical marker that tells us when this happened, but it's so much more than that. We know from our own experience how times of leadership change bring uncertainty and insecurity to a nation. It happens here in Britain. As soon as there's even a whiff of a general election, the financial markets react. In the weeks leading up to an election, and until there's a clear government in place, the FTSE takes a dive and the pound is weakened in the exchange rates because so much depends on our leaders. Now that's what's happening to Judah as we arrive at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6. The nation of Judah has been significantly destabilised because of King Uzziah's death. Uh, the Bible books of two kings and two chronicles fill out the details of Isaiah's reign and I've, I've listed the references on the handout for you to look at later. As you read through those chapters, where you'll discover that Uzziah enjoyed a prosperous 52-year reign and a period of co-regency with his son Jotham. I imagine as I read that, that on the anniversary of his golden jubilee, the people of Judah would have thrown street parties and put up bunting and celebrated his reign with coronation chicken and fairy cakes. For under Uzziah, the nation of Judah had prospered in so many ways. But in the year that King Uzziah died, there were two significant threats to Judah. Now, the first I've called the external threat. It came in the form of the Assyrians. Now, five years before Uzziah's death, an ambitious and very able leader had come to power in Assyria. His name was Tiglath-Pileser III. In no time at all, he led his nation, the Assyrians, to conquer Babylon. And then he turned his military attentions to the southwest, and, and the first to feel the force of the Assyrian army was the nation of Syria. And from then on, the direction of the Assyrian campaign was clear to see as everyone between Syria and Judah began to crumble under this new world superpower, marching uh, southwest and then south. And so in the year that King Uzziah died, the international scene was full of threat for the little nation of Judah. That was the external threat. And it, it would have seemed like the biggest threat to Judah. But in fact, there was a bigger threat, and, and that's what I've called the, the internal threat. 
the problem of pride. See, as I've already said, as you read 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, it's clear that Uzziah had been a very successful king. He could boast of significant military achievements and of agricultural developments. He could boast of strengthening internal security and improving Judah's infrastructure. He could boast of an economic boom. And indeed, that was the problem. He did boast of those things. Now turn with me to 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 16, page 460. We're going to go back to Isaiah 6, but just very quickly to page 460, 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 16, and you'll see Uzziah's real problem. Now as you're turning there, page 460, uh, in the first part of 2 Chronicles 26, we read of the great things that um, Uzziah did, the the great achievements that I've just uh, catalogued for us. But then we read... These devastating words in verse 16, 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Now as you read on and look down to verse 19, you'll see that his pride, in his pride, he, he disobeyed the Lord. And so the judgment of God came upon him. In verse 19, he was struck down with leprosy. And at the end of verse 20, very important, it makes it very clear, right at the end of verse 20, it was the Lord who afflicted him with that dreadful skin disease. That all came about because of his pride. 2 Chronicles 26 is a devastating chapter. King Uzziah did so many things so very well, but because he did so many things so very well, he became a proud man. And pride always leads us to being unfaithful towards the Lord. Indeed, pride is a rejection of God. Pride is saying, I'm great, I don't need you, God. And as we saw a few weeks back in Isaiah chapter 2, the nation of Judah followed Uzziah's lead in becoming proud and turning from the Lord. That's what happens every time you read Kings and Chronicles. Whenever the king goes off the rails, he's supposed to lead the people of God to the Lord. And whenever he goes off the rails, they follow him and they became proud as well. And that was the internal threat to the nation. They had rejected the Lord. Now as we turn back to uh, Isaiah chapter 6, it's what we've seen in the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah. We've seen the fruit of this pride, of this turning away from the Lord. They were thoroughly sinful. And now chapter 5 of Isaiah, do you remember a couple of weeks back, they were under the judgment of God. So when King Uzziah died, the nation was in turmoil. It was under the threat from the Assyrians, the external threat, but the internal threat. It had lost its spiritual moorings. It had rejected the Lord, which was by far the greatest problem. And now with King Uzziah dead, Judah didn't know where to turn. They had so relied upon the leadership of Uzziah, but trusting in Stable government, strong direction, human wisdom and ingenuity had for them become an alternative to knowing the power and purpose of God. And so this one phrase, in the, king that you, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, in that one phrase we're introduced to a theme which runs through the next 33 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Who will Judah trust? Judah is under threat. Who will she trust? The Assyrians are coming. Who can she turn to for deliverance? She should turn to the Lord, but she's proud. She's rejected the Lord. And so she's a nation all at sea. 
And it seems to me that uh, Judah's turmoil is not so different from ours in Britain today. Like Judah in so many ways, we seem to be a successful nation. Uh, Just think about the last 50, uh, 60 years. Think about how it was just after the war. Since then, there's been great economic growth and a growing strengthening of internal security. Advances in technology and in scientific discovery that have made life so much more comfortable and convenient than ever it was before. But all that masks a big problem. We turned away from the Lord. We're, a problem which has come to light through the external threats that have come to us in these last years. I just think about the last few years. We've been rocked by the threat of a recession that has gripped the majority of the Western world and we don't know where to turn. Since 9-11, we've felt the enormous threat of terrorism, a threat that has changed the way the world thinks about everything from air travel to international diplomacy. As one reporter said after the 9-11 attacks, if New York is not safe, if the Pentagon is not safe, then quite simply we are not safe. We feel that. And so with these external threats, we should, have, we should have turned to the Lord, the only one who can give us real security and, and definite direction. But those external threats have revealed the greater problem. That this nation, like the nation of Judah in Isaiah's day, this nation has increasingly rejected the Lord. No, no, we were never a Christian nation. But so much of what made Britain great was built on Christian values. But now in our pride as a nation, we thoroughly rejected the Lord. We, we, we openly live lives that are now contrary to his law. Just consider how the government is attempting to redefine the very core building block of society, marriage. It's just one of the many examples that show us that we have rejected our God. And so at this time of external threat, at this time when we feel vulnerable as a nation financially and physically, our spiritual state is exposed. We don't know where to turn because we've turned away from the one true living God. And that is the point of Isaiah chapter 6 to bring us back to him. So from the death of Uzziah, a nation in turmoil, second we see the vision of the king, an individual in the presence of God. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The king is dead. Long live the king. That's what this vision says to us. As Judah staggers at the news of Uzziah's death, Isaiah is shown the king, the Lord. You see it there, the Lord seated on a throne. And what we see here in this chapter is that the Lord is the sovereign king of the whole earth, the absolute overlord of this planet. Verse 1, he is high and exalted, totally different from any other earthly king. He's completely different to Judah's earthly king, Uzziah. He is greater than the Assyrian leader, Tiglath-Pileser III. He is the Lord, the judge of all the earth. And I love that picture at the end of verse 1. Do you see it there? The train of his robe filled the temple just the train of his robe filled the temple i went to jerusalem a few years back and and stood by the wailing wall as it's called but the western wall it is a part of the retaining wall supporting the temple mount built by herod in 20 bc and it is huge google it when you get home if you want to see how big it is you can see these pictures of the wall and you'll see how big the western wall is of herod's temple 
And it gives you an idea, while it was a different temple, of how big the Temple of Isaiah's day would have been. The Western Wall alone dwarfs people. People look like ants as they stand in front of that great structure. And that's just one wall of the temple. And yet we read here at the end of verse 1 that the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple. Just the train of his robe. Everything Isaiah saw in this vision tells us how awesome the sovereign Lord really is. In verse 2 we read of the seraphs who who serve the Lord. Uh, They had six wings. uh, And with those wings, uh, as you read about them, they were clearly mighty beings. They were beings who themselves were out of this world. Yet with their wings they cover their faces and their feet. Showing that before the Lord, they, these awesome beings, act in humility and reverence. They know who's king. The seraph's action tell us who's king, but much more what they say tells us about the king. Verse 3, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now this uh, threefold repetition of the word holy is what Alec Matea calls a super superlative. He says this, God's holiness is in itself so far beyond human thought that a super superlative has to be invented to express it. Now the repetition then, holy, 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 is said for very great emphasis. We might say, if we were putting it into English, the Lord is very, 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 very holy. The Lord is so holy, there is no one and nothing that can be compared in his holiness. And if that isn't enough, the seraphs add, verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory, the whole earth. God's presence, God's majesty, his holiness, his utter sovereignty is everywhere. So much greater than any earthly king. And what an experience it was to be in his presence, verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. The season before last, I went to see Sheffield United play Leeds United. A local Yorkshire derby. The place was full. Uh, the intensity of the fans was quite something, quite intimidating, actually. I took my son, supporting Sheffield United. I ended up, even as a Leeds fan, in with the Sheffield United fans. And when Sheffield United scored, the place was rocking. I'm reminding all you Sheffield United fans that they do score from time to time. And it's been a long while. But uh, anyway, it was, they were rocking. Sorry, this isn't endearing me to anybody, is it? Except the Sheffield Wednesday fans, of course. But... Years ago, I went to see Leeds United get a thrashing against Man United. I didn't actually go to see them get a thrashing, but that's what happened. Fifteen minutes into the game, 3-0 down. Once again, I'm in with the Man United fans. They were delirious. The noise was deafening. That's what's happening here. Only it was nothing like anything I've experienced at a football match. Verse 4, it was so loud, the whole temple was shaking. This enormous structure shaking at the sound of their voices. This is overwhelming. Now, the shaking of the room being biblical speak for the presence of God. I've uh, put references on the handout for you to chase up later to see that. In the same way, end of verse 4, the temple was filled with smoke. Uh, This isn't just dry ice for effect. Again, smoke is a biblical sign of God's presence. So the temple shakes and is full of smoke. And the point is, God is so amazing, so wonderful, so out of this world. It is overwhelming. But look at the detail of verse 4. I'd never seen this before until this week. The shaking came, verse 4, at the sound of the voices of the seraphs. 
See, it's what they have been saying, verse 3, that makes the place shake. They have been declaring the truth about God. They only have to speak of God's holiness and how his glory fills the earth. And, and Isaiah experiences the awesome presence of God. And it is phenomenal. It's awesome. And it's terrifying, verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's exactly what we've been seeing in the first five chapters. Judah is thoroughly sinful. Jerusalem is a wicked city. And being confronted by the holiness of God, Isaiah recognises his own unholiness, his own sinfulness, and the sinfulness of the nation. And in the presence of a holy God, Isaiah recognises he is doomed and that he and Judah should be judged. And so what should follow is this, verse 6, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the tongs of the altar. And verse 7, With it he touched my mouth, and I was instantly burned to a cinder, obliterated, because I was a guilty, sinful man. That's what we should read. But that's not it. What we actually read is verse 7, With it, with the coal from the altar, the seraph touched my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is amazing grace. Isaiah knows what he deserves, but he receives forgiveness. He deserves to be judged, smashed, cast out of the presence of God forever, but he is cleansed and his guilt is taken away. And note the source of his forgiveness. Verse 6, it is the altar, the place of sacrifice. That's where guilt is dealt with and sin atoned for. And while it's not clear here how this can happen, when we get to Isaiah chapter 53 and verses 10 to 12, it becomes clear that God brings this forgiveness through the death of his servant who is made an offering for sin. The servant we know as Jesus. Forgiveness comes through the substitutional death, the sacrificial atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in this chapter, we discover the wonderful message of the book of Isaiah. It's what we'll be remembering as we take bread and wine Uh, later on. Isaiah deserves the judgment of God. Judah, the nation, deserves the judgment of God. But there is a way of forgiveness. And so here in chapter 6, we discover what a guilty world needs to hear. We discover what a people rocked by the death of Isaiah need to see. Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 tells a confused nation where to turn. They had relied upon an earthly king, but he was mortal, and in his death they realised they had no one to help them. They feared another earthly king, the king of Assyria, and he seemed so powerful, so they needed this vision. They needed to see the awesome king, the holy one of Israel, the God who is sovereign over the entire world. And they needed to know that this king, through the sacrifice of his servant, would embrace them and accept them back. Isaiah chapter 6 says, in your vulnerability, look no further than to this glorious holy God. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is the sovereign Lord. You can see it everywhere. You just need to recognize it. And in this chapter, we see what a sinful world needs to see. 
remember where the whole book is heading? You don't need to look at it now, but uh, do you remember chapter 1, verse 1? It concerns Judah and Jerusalem. And what we've seen over the last few weeks, the first five chapters tells us that Judah is a sinful nation, Jerusalem an unfaithful city. They deserve only God's judgment. But that's not the end of the book, as I've already said, for the book ends in chapter 65 and 66 with God having gathered together a people, a holy people from every nation, including the nation of Judah. And he's placed them in his presence in a glorious new heavenly Jerusalem. And this vision in chapter 6 tells us how that can come about. How a holy God can transform people. How a holy God can accept people. How a holy God can make a sinful nation and a rebellious city into a holy people in the new heavenly Jerusalem. And it happens when we see that the Lord is the sovereign rule of the world. That he is a holy God. That before this God we deserve only his judgment. But that there is a way to be forgiven, cleansed through the sacrifice that God provides. That's what a sinful world needs. And that's why we see thirdly and finally the ministry of Isaiah, a message of judgment. Uh, Verses 8 to 13. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Barry Webb writes concisely, the Lord seeks a messenger and Isaiah now cleansed, is ready and willing to be his mouthpiece. The Lord asks, whom shall I send? And quick as a flash, Isaiah puts his hand on me. I'll go, I'll go, send me. He's seen the Lord, he's been forgiven by the Lord and it has transformed him. Of course he'll go. Now, do you see what's happened in the first eight verses of this chapter? The way the Lord inspired Isaiah to speak to a world that had rejected the Lord was to give Isaiah a vision of himself. I reckon that's what you and I need. It's what I need. I need a vision of the Lord if I'm going to get out and tell a nation, this nation, about the Lord. And it's what the nation needs to see, to see how holy God is. I find it so hard to tell people about Jesus. I need this. Well, Isaiah had this astonishing vision of God. And the moment God said to Isaiah, who will go for us? Isaiah put up his hand, me, I'll go, me. I don't know whether this is the case, but I reckon as soon as he heard the words of the Lord in verse 9, Isaiah regretted opening his big mouth. See, verse 9, the Lord said, well, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and, their, and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. <laughs> the Lord revealed to Isaiah that his people would be unwilling to receive and act upon the message that he was going to take. Uh, We'll see exactly this when we read on in verses 7 to 11. Very especially in chapter 7 and 8 in King Ahaz. We see this happening. What a depressing prospect. I'll go. Great. As you go, no one's going to (laughs) listen. And so Isaiah says, for how long, O Lord, in verse 11, how long will you... Have I got to do this? How long will people reject your word, Lord, as I take it to them? And the Lord answered, verse 11, 
until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. It is a description of exile. You see there, cities, houses, land, emptied. The population deported, sent far away from the land, as we read. And that is exactly what happens in this book. The people of Judah are sent into exile. But even in the face of such judgment, there is a slender hope of salvation here. Look at the, the, the last word, the very last words of Isaiah that, I, that, that God says to Isaiah at the end of verse 13. So he talks about exile and then he says, verse 13, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. There's more to come. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. It's a picture of these mighty trees being chopped down, just a stump left. But the stump, we're told, in chapter 11, verse 1, the holy seed is the shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. Again, we know it's the Lord Jesus. Isaiah calls him later on in the book, the servant of the Lord. But the promise is here that through him, some would turn to the Lord. What's the point of all this as we draw to a close? Well, these verses, 9 and 10, these verses that speak of uh, being blinded to the truth, uh, these verses are quoted in the New Testament five times. Again, I've put the references on the handout. They're quoted in Matthew, Mark and Luke as Jesus quotes these verses to explain why he spoke in parables. And he says there in Matthew, Mark and Luke that he speaks in parables as judgment upon those who've already rejected him. I speak in parables to see, to, to close the eyes of people, but they can see if they'll only listen. In John's Gospel, John quotes these verses to explain why the Pharisees wouldn't believe in Jesus even after he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. So they've seen Jesus do this remarkable miracle, but they won't believe. Why? Because they've already rejected Jesus, they're blind to it. And in Acts, Paul quotes these verses when he experienced opposition from the Jews in Rome. He's preaching the gospel. The Jews don't want to take, don't want to receive the gospel message. And so he says, this is just this that Isaiah said coming true. In each case, these verses are quoted to show that if people reject God, then his word comes in judgment against them. And as his word of judgment comes, if they still stubbornly refuse to hear his word, then their hearts are hardened further against him. And it tells us that's what we should expect as we tell people about Jesus. It happened to Isaiah. It happened to the Lord Jesus himself. It will happen to us. People will reject the message of the gospel. I don't need to tell you that. You know that that's true when you've tried to share the gospel. And when that happens, if you're anything like me, you'll be tempted to change the message, to to make it a bit more palatable, to get a more favourable response. But we can't do that. That's the point. This is the only way that people will turn truly to the Holy One of Israel. Only if they have this message of a holy God who judges sin and they see their sinfulness, then they'll run to the one who takes away their sin. That is the only hope for a nation under judgment. 
To see God as he really is, holy, holy, holy. See ourselves as we really are, very unholy and in need of forgiveness. So let's pray this morning that this vision would change us. Reveal to us our sinfulness. Make us rejoice in his way of salvation. And give us the same eager desire to say, as Isaiah did, here am I, send me, I'll go. And then, as we go, taking this message of a holy God to a people who have rejected him, trusting that the Lord will still call some to himself, that they too may be able to share in the glorious presence of God in the wonderful new heavenly Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Well, I'm going to pray a prayer for us, then there'll be a short moment of silence and then Sonia Crosley will continue to lead us in our prayers. Almighty God, holy God, we thank you for this remarkable vision that Isaiah saw, that he writes down so that we too could see. We thank you for showing us how awesome and in control you are. Thank you for showing us how unholy we are and how desperately in need we are of your forgiveness. Thank you that you are a God of grace, a remarkable grace that brings forgiveness to those who recognise their sin and repent and believe in you. Thank you that even a nation under judgment Uh, can have a message of hope and we ask you please to so transform us with this vision that we like Isaiah would go with this same vision to those who need Jesus that they too may turn to him and have the wonderful hope of spending all eternity with you in the glorious new heavenly Jerusalem And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.